That song, The Power of the Cross, tends to make me emotional. It's partly because I, I have a, such a, it invokes in me such a strong sense of gratitude to God. For what God has done for, for us, for me, on the cross. But there is also a sense of, of the reality of the connection of the cross and my sin. And that sometimes is overwhelming. The more I ponder the cross, the more I think about the the themes of this Lenten season, the more I believe that, that I'm not sure we really grasp the destructive power of sin. I know sometimes I don't. We see the destructive power of sin in in places like Columbine or Auschwitz, South Sudan, the Sierra Leonean civil war, our own civil war. We see it in Montgomery in 1963. We see it in Parkland, Florida in 2018. We get that. We see that. It's obvious to us. But I think it's less obvious the destructive nature of sin in our own lives. What sin does to our relationships. We recognize it after we've done the damage. We recognize it after we've left the carnage. But in the middle of it... Something in us is convinced that it's just not that bad. And I think that's because what we really don't see is not so much the effects of sin on our relationships and even on ourselves. What we miss at the heart of it is that we miss the damage that sin does to our relationship with God. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, the place where, where the, our first ancestors live, there is, there is harmony with God. There is intimacy with God. There is unity with God. And then sin enters the picture. And what was, what was intimacy now becomes distance. What was dependence now becomes independence. What was knowledge now becomes ignorance. What was fellowship now becomes disconnectedness. What was trust now becomes suspicion. 
And from the moment that, that Adam and Eve chose sin, instead of a life of trusting God, they became suspicious of God. I mean, that was the temptation, really. God isn't who he says he is. God doesn't do what he says he's going to do. Your life is better without him. And we have been making those decisions ever since. I'm not sure that there is any more visible symbol of that separation and the, and the damage that sin has created between us and God, any more vivid symbol of that than the Old Testament temple. The temple is a place that is constructed for the very purpose of separation. There are, there are numerous courts in the temple. And, and every court has, has a barrier, a wall, to certain people. The outer court is the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as Gentile believers, Gentile followers of God can go. The next court is for Jewish women, and that's as far as they can go. And the next court is for Jewish men, and that's as far as they can go. And the next court is where the priests go. And then there is one final space, one final room. It's smaller than all the rest. It is the place that, that Scripture calls the most holy place. We read about it in Exodus 26. You may have been wondering, why did we read that passage about putting up the curtains? Here it is. Exodus 26, across the inside of the tabernacle, God says, hang a special curtain made of fine linen with cherubim skillfully embroidered into the cloth using blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Hang this inner curtain on gold hooks, set it into four posts made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The posts will fit into silver bases, and when the inner curtain is in place, put the Ark of the Covenant behind it. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Then put the ark's cover, the place of atonement, on top of the ark of the covenant, inside the most holy place. There is this curtain that is here in front of this. And there are restrictions. There are barriers. It, this, this curtain is all about the separation of God who is holy and human beings who are not. And as Leviticus tells us, there's only one person who can enter that most holy space and only can do it once a year. The Lord said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. The penalty for intrusion is death. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud over the atonement cover. One day of the year, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest and the high priest alone could enter that space. If the high priest tried to go into that space any other day of the year, death. If anybody else tries to enter that space on any day of the year, death. This curtain is a wall of separation. And it's, it's made, a curtain may only be a few inches wide, but it might as well be a few miles wide. separates because that's what sin does our sin separates us from a holy God 
And that's what fascinates me in the gospel account of the death of Jesus. That all three synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that when Jesus dies, when he takes his last breath, something happens to that curtain. I have in my mind this vision of of the shadow of the cross falling on that curtain and striking it at the top of the curtain and it rips all the way down the center. It is interesting that both Matthew and Mark tell us that the curtain rips from top to bottom. Now that may not seem like much. When I envisioned the curtain, you know, I'm thinking like a shower curtain. You know, I'm thinking one of those curtains that you have in a dressing room in a store. This is something different. Historian Josephus tells us that curtain is 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. And it's made of sort of this brocaded type material that is created by weaving together 12 strands of thread tightly woven together. And that becomes the material out of which they make this curtain. It is tall, it's wide, it's heavy, it's thick. And there, at the death of Jesus, this curtain rips from top to bottom. I don't know if anybody was in, any priests were working in the temple when this happened, but it must have been a frightening thing to see. And that torn curtain, that torn curtain is a, is a call to us It is a word to us about what God wants to do about the separation between us and him. That in Jesus on the cross, God wants closeness with us. He wants to take that separation and bring us together. And he opens up this way. It's about accessibility to God. It's about the intimacy that God wants to have with us. That same intimacy that Adam and Eve had in the garden. That same intimacy that we will have in the, in the end of Revelation, in the new heaven and the new earth. But God wants us to experience something of that intimacy now too. And since none of us could do anything about the separation, God does. And what God does is, he, is Jesus goes to a cross. And when he says it's finished, it's done. We now have not just intimacy and closeness with God, but we have access to God in a way that we did not have before. Before the curtain is torn, one person, one man, one day a year. Now, all people, any day of the year. Everyone has access to God. There there is complete and total access to our creator, God. And it is the beginning of the restoration of all that God has created that we read about throughout Scripture. I suspect that there is something in us, in our human nature, that might think, I mean, it's great that we have access to God, but everyone? I mean, we have a tendency to to 
to assign value and worth to ourselves and significance by the fact that we have something other people don't have. I mean, that's how we gain a sense of value. I have value because I can do something that someone else can't do. I have experiences that somebody else doesn't have. I, I, have, I have connections that someone else doesn't have. And, and when we feel that and when we sense that, it makes us feel a little bit more valuable, a little bit more significant. What we're really saying is, I can only feel that kind of value and significance If I can do something, someone else can't. And I suspect there is something, even in the back of our minds, maybe subconscious, that's thinking, but Lord, everybody acts us? Because God says, when the curtain is torn, that means everyone is special. We have a tendency to say, if everyone's special, no one's special. Right? And so what do we do? We do what I suspect the Jews did. I don't know this. I couldn't find anywhere uh, any evidence of this. But I would suspect that for the next 30 years while the temp- before the temple was destroyed, between the time the curtain tore and the time that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, for those 30 years, they either mended that curtain or they put up another one. And I think we have a tendency to do the same thing. We're always, the church is always putting up curtains. This person, these people are not really the kind of people that should have access to God. You can't think that way and have access to God. You can't do these things and have access to God. You can't live that way and have access to God. You can't believe this and have access to God. There have to be barriers. And so, since God won't put them up, we will. I have a friend who says the history of the church could could probably be summarized in a continual struggle to decide who's in and who's out. And I suspect that's true. Look at the history of the church. It is continually a battle, a fight, a struggle to see... I'm in, you're not. And of course, the people who decide who's in and who's out are always the people who believe they're in. Right? Isn't that the way it works? And we are continually putting up barriers to people when the reality is the call of the gospel is to do exactly what God does, and that's to remove the barriers, to break down the walls, to be people who build bridges. That's the call of the gospel. I mean, if nothing else, we should be inspired by that, by the fact that God does that with us. And what we forget is that when we put up barriers and curtains for other people, it backfires. Because all of a sudden, we begin to think and see barriers and curtains between us and God. You can't help it. And the barriers we put up about other people become the same barriers that block us. But this isn't just about access to God. I think there is a sense in which the the rending of the curtain and opening that is also about God having access to us. 
you think about it for a moment, it is not as if now that the curtain is open, all of our commonness infiltrates into this holy space and dilutes it. It is rather that all that is of this holy space pours out into our commonness to make it holy. It is because God now has access to us in a sense that now there really is no such thing as common and sacred. God is at work in everything, making everything sacred. And that means that every moment of our life is sacred. Everything we do has the potential to be sacred. Every relationship we should think about as being sacred. Every bit of our work we should think about as being sacred. We tend to think that there is this division. We could put it, One of the curtains we put up is, okay, I have my time with God, and then I go live the rest of my life. And the gospel says, no, you have this time with God, and God goes with you. I have my spiritual discussions, and then I have all my other discussions. And the gospel says, no, you have your spiritual discussions, and those spiritual discussions infiltrate all of your other discussions. I have my church work, and then I have all of my other work. The gospel says, no, you have your church work that goes with you when you go into your other work. Because the point of the tearing of the curtain and the point of the cross, the ultimate end of that is not just the forgiveness of our sins, as important as that is. It is not just to live in eternity with God as awesome as that is. It is so much more than that. It is about God making us holy as he is holy. It is about the holiness of God infiltrating us and transforming us and every part of who we are to make us holy as he is holy. I think sometimes we have a sense that that God forgiving our sins is the end of it. That's the beginning of it. That's the start of it. Because God's purposes are so much more than that. God wants to shape us into the image of Christ. God wants his spirit to fill us so that we begin to look like Christ and think like Christ and act like Christ and speak like Christ and hear like Christ. We become people who reflect the nature of Christ because God has filled us. And so what what do people see? They see the fruit of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what it means to be holy. They see in us a commitment. They see in us a desire, a yearning. To follow the two great commandments that Jesus says. To love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And they see that not just in us as individuals. But corporately too. We become not just forgiven people. We become completely 
different people, transformed people. That's the, that's the call of the gospel. That's the cross. That has always been God's intent. You look back at the Old Testament. What did God say to Israel? I'm going to make you a holy nation. That's my intent for you. Peter makes that same statement in his first letter. It struck me just this week that this barrier between the most holy place and everything else, that barrier is not a wall, it's a curtain. Walls are permanent, curtains are temporary. And I think that's a part of God's design because even though there was a barrier, his plan from the very beginning was for the curtain to eventually come down. Because God wants closeness with us. Because God wants intimacy with us. Because God wants this mutual accessibility with us. And because God wants to make us holy like himself. We often think of holiness as rules, strictness, rigidness. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's just us putting up, putting up curtains again. True holiness is the freedom to live in the Spirit. True holiness is the freedom to be so open to God that what He wants is what we want. It's not confinement. It's freedom in Christ. Because Christ is at the center of everything. Ever since I was a little boy, I've loved doing puzzles. My parents tell me that, you know, when I was little, they'd put a bunch of puzzles in front of me, and it would occupy me for hours. I, I always have loved doing puzzles. I've got shelves of puzzles in our basement, and every year for my birthday or Christmas, I usually get a puzzle, maybe more than one puzzle. And I love them. And, and even though I can become obsessive-compulsive about puzzles, you know, that moment, it's getting to be midnight, and I'm just one more piece, just one more piece. Uh, if you do puzzles, you know what I'm talking about. Even though I can become like that, it's actually very relaxing to me. It, it, it's just sort of, you know, my mind works in different ways than it might normally. And I love doing puzzles. And, of course, when you do a puzzle, the first thing out of the box is you start separating the pieces. And what are you looking for first? You're looking for the border. You always start with the border. You have to have some frame of reference. And the border is the frame of reference. And so you're looking for all the edge pieces. All those pieces that have flat edges on them. And you're getting them all out. And the first thing you do is you put the border together. And then you start working your way in. What intrigued me, what caught my attention, because I love puzzles. I, I, so I was reading something the other day and it said, Have you ever seen anybody start a puzzle from the inside and work their way out? I'm thinking, I've never done that. I don't know of anybody who ever done that. I, it's just not the way you do a puzzle. You have to set some boundaries first. You have to get, a, you have to, you have to get the, the edges in place first. And this person said, nobody starts a puzzle in the center except God. God starts puzzles in the center. Because in the center of God's puzzle is Christ. And the kingdom of God is not about boundaries. 
It's not about borders. It's not about confinement. It's about Jesus. And when Jesus comes to the cross, and Jesus becomes the center and makes this way accessible toward us, it is about Jesus at the center of everything, including us. And when Jesus is at the center, then there's no longer these, there's no longer confinement, there's freedom. Freedom to go however he wants to go, how far, how long, how deep, how wide. It's up to Jesus. And while we are sitting back thinking about our lives as confinement and borders, the whole time Jesus is trying to convince us to trust him to find freedom. And the tearing of this curtain through the cross is God's call to freedom in Christ. And when we come to this table, this is a table of of remembering our sins. This is a table of, of acknowledging what God has done for us. But this is also a table in which we come saying, I want to be open to you. I want to know freedom in Christ through his grace. And as we prepare our hearts to come, let that be our prayer. Father, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for that the curtain is torn. Thank you that you have given us You brought us close to you. And thank you that you want to do more for us than we could ever dream or imagine. We come today in openness to you through the grace of Christ. We pray your blessing would rest upon the bread and the cup that as we eat and drink, we would do so to your glory. We pray that you would feed our souls with your gracious holiness, through Jesus Christ. Amen.